Welcome to the Montgomery Community Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you to grow deeper in your faith. If you'd like to learn more about MCC, you can visit our website at mcc.church. What well, is so good to see you here today, and I hope you're enjoying the day. I mean, what a beautiful day. I know you missed the snow. Uh, but isn't it great to have the sun and uh, to experience, I think, the weather that's coming this week. I'm going to get my shorts out, my t-shirt, and uh, looking forward to a little bit of that. And I'm sure you also join with me in, in saying this, if not verbally in your heart, that I would say, I love our country. I love our country. And I know there's a lot of different opinions and a lot of thoughts out there, but I love our country. I mean, even with its flaws, it's still the best place on the face of the planet to live. And I say that, I think, for a lot of different reasons, right? I I think, first of all, our country is incredibly diverse in terrain. And I love to go outdoors. I love to hike. I love to ski. You know, I like to do all kinds of things. And in our country, you can visit the ocean. You can visit the desert. You can visit the mountains or the plains. I mean, take your pick. It's all here. I also love our country because it's diverse in population, I mean, we're blessed with people from every background, ethnicity, and skin color. I mean, all really reflecting the image of God. In fact, at times in our country when we don't appreciate that and we don't just love that, I mean, we're far removed from really understanding God's heart. He made us all. He loves us all. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And I would say our country also is a leader in so many different ways. I mean, when you think about it, from the auto industry to the movie industry to the tech industry, we've shown ourselves to be incredibly, like, talented and unique and creative. But one thing that stood out for me in my life is this, that our country, it sets the example still for the rest of the world regarding this one thing that every human being craves. It's called freedom. Freedom. I mean, this is one blessing we should never take for granted. So many different people across our world, I mean, they not only long for a place where their hearts can run free, they long for a place where they can physically run free. And I know for some of us, you know, you hear that, you can't appreciate that so much. I mean, I have seen this firsthand in my life. I'll never forget, like five years ago, speaking in India. And I spoke at a church, 5,000 people in this church, mostly all walking miles to get there. Amazing, 5,000 people, it was huge. And I could preach inside that church, but if I walked outside the church, you know, in the grounds and said anything like what I said inside, I would have been arrested. And then when I visited the Middle East and we went to Bethlehem and I sat with college students there in Bethlehem, they told me that, you know, while you know, they, they have friends and family who have come to faith in Christ, many times their family, they don't even know. In fact, they told me that they had friends who had completely disappeared because their family found out that they had converted to Christianity. Friends, we live in a country we are blessed to live in where our hearts can run free, we can run free. And I I think about that in light of this quote, and this is gonna take us to the heart of what we're talking about today. Elmer Davis said, this nation will remain the land of the free only so long as it is the home of the brave. Ask the question, what's bravery? I mean, there's different ways to look at it, right? I mean, some people say that it's a willingness to stand up against a powerful enemy. And that's something our country has done throughout its history. 
Uh, we've done that, so we've shown ourselves to be brave. Others would say bravery is whenever you take on a personal goal that seems like too large for you. And I think today our country is great because Americans over time have taken on goals that were too large for them, and it, it's made our country better. But some would say, you know what, you gotta look deeper though. I mean, bravery really manifests itself whenever you're bold enough to confront anything that's harmful or destructive within you. And I think this is where we as a nation, we are weak. We have not really confronted those things. In fact, some of those things that are destroying us are really being esteemed today in our culture. And in that way, we've become a little bit like Laodicea, a place that Paul has mentioned in Colossians, this place that is known for like being incredibly modern, but also a place known for just being lukewarm, not hot or cold. As a revelation, Jesus says, kind of a place I want to spit out of my mouth because you have not chosen purity. You've not chosen me. You're mixing me with all kinds of different things. And in this way, I think our country hasn't done the work, doesn't have the bravery sometimes to confront itself, what's really going on deep down inside. And you might have different ideas about what I might be talking about when I say that. But really what I'm getting at today is not so much about our country. It's about me and you. Do you, do I, do we have the bravery to confront anything inside of us that's really destroying us in one way or another? Do we? Do we? And that's what Paul is going to talk to us about today. In order to get there, I think we have to go back, though, to one of the things that I said that I really love about our country, the fact that we're very unique and special. And to me, that, that relates to movies. As I told you before, I love a good movie, especially true stories that have been made into movies. I love them. Movies like Rise. Have you seen Rise? Oh, come on now. I gotta see Rise. And the movie Argo, or, or The Social Network, or the really kind of interesting story, Can You Forgive Me? Or the movie Moneyball. Love that movie as well. And one reason why I love these kinds of movies is because in one way or another, I can see how the main story relates to my story. And this is what Paul is doing today. He wants us all to see how Christ's story impacts our story. How Christ's story impacts our story. One pastor wrote it this way. Imagine that you are a word and Jesus is a book full of empty pages. Essentially, God has written you into the book's blank pages so that whatever happens to the book happens to the words. If the book is placed on the library shelf, the words sit on the shelf too. If the book is checked out from the library, the words leave too. So he's saying, think about how Christ's story impacts your story. In fact, in order to kind of help us in this way, the Apostle Paul begins here in a way that really, I think, made a lot of sense to the culture of his time. I mean, he wrote those words and they just like got it. But in our culture, we look at them, we find his words a bit strange. In fact, even as I read them in just a moment, you might feel like the Apostle Peter did when he was considering some of Paul's writings. Peter wrote his letters, he's talking about Paul, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. So today, we're gonna do that and we're gonna talk about some things that are hard to understand. So for, for us to see then how Christ's story impacts our story, here's how Paul begins. He says, in him, in Christ, you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. 
Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. What in the world? I mean, he's talking about circumcision. And I think we all know that circumcision basically is the cutting off of a particular piece of skin. And even as I give that definition, some guys are crossing their legs right now and some are kind of breaking into a cold sweat, right? Not all that comfortable to think about. So what is Paul doing? Well, in his culture, for the Jewish culture, of course, this was a very popular thing. Circumcision represented the covenant between God and Abraham, which was required for the inclusion of every male so they could enter fully into the Jewish faith. So Paul here uses a common practice for the Jewish people in order to describe the spiritual transformation, the spiritual transformation that takes place whenever anyone repents, believes, and receives salvation due to their response to the gospel. And in doing so, you gotta remember Paul saying that he's not talking about the circumcision that they're aware of, that they do all the time. Circumcision done by human hands. So basically he's saying, you know, he, he wasn't writing about the circumcision that every baby boy received after he was born. So what was he writing about? Well, Paul was writing about a spiritual circumcision of the heart. You see, in the Bible, the heart is the center of who we are. It's why Jesus said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when you speak, whatever comes out of your words says a lot about what's really inside of you. So Paul's talking here about the spiritual circumcision of the heart, which began with the physical circumcision where Christ's body was put to death on the cross. And in so doing, his body was cut and his body was bruised. And this relates then to our spiritual circumcision. A circumcision where our flesh, not our skin, but our flesh, meaning really our temptation-prone humanity, right? This thing that we were drawn to has been cut away in our hearts due to Christ's work on the cross for us so that we could fully live. So to put it differently, since our sin has been cut away by Christ, we then have died to sin and we live in freedom, a freedom made possible by Christ's work on the cross. But here's the problem. And this is what Paul is trying to get us to understand. This is the heart of the matter, that we sometimes want to regrow the sin areas in our heart that Christ has already cut away. We want to regrow those areas because we like those areas. We're drawn to those areas. That's why you know, when some people say, oh, I struggle with this, and other people say, I don't understand that at all. I don't have that struggle. That's because they have a different one that they haven't you know, brought up or dared to mention. We sometimes want to regrow the sin area in our heart that Christ has cut away. And rather, Paul is saying, we should rest in the work that Jesus has done for us. Walk in the freedom that he's given us. One pastor wrote it this way, the work Jesus did on the cross defines your life. Does it define your life? Because it should. The work Jesus did on the cross defines your life. It gives you victory over death. You are identified with Christ. You are a brand new creation. You are not unwanted, unlovely, or worthless. You are wanted by God, made in the image of God, and worthy of Christ's love because he has chosen to place worth upon you. Your identity was born in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You are forgiven, made right. You are holy in Christ. Your guilt is gone. You are free. The question, if we're really going to look 
deeply is this. Are you walking in that freedom? Are you living in that freedom? Are you serving in that freedom? I ask because like I said, we sometimes want to regrow the areas of our heart that Christ has already cut away. As the Apostle Paul, he put it this way, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. So here, Paul is saying that Christ's story first impacts our story due to the work on the cross he's done for us to cut away our sins, the circumcision of our heart. And then Paul tells us that Christ's story impacts our story due to Christ's burial and resurrection, which directly relates to any time that we enter the waters of baptism. Last service, we had someone who's baptized and the whole place erupted in celebration. I wish you could have you know, experienced that. But Paul is saying that in baptism, just as Jesus was buried, our sins were buried. We ought to leave them there. And just as Jesus was raised from the dead, we have been raised as well. And just as Jesus experienced new life, we have received life everlasting because of what Christ has done for us. And some people stop there, but there's more. Paul is trying to get us to understand this as well. That just like circumcision helped to ensure that every Jewish male could fully enter into the family, our baptism then is a sign that we have been included into God's multi-ethnic worldwide family as well. You see, Jesus saves us into community where we're all different from one another. And yet God loves us all the same. To this truth, Paul continued, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. So I want you to think about life for a moment. Some people define life this way, the ability to draw resources from the surrounding world in order to thrive or in order to live. For example, you might say a seed has life when its roots go all the way down into the soil to draw needed nutrients from the ground. And when it does so, it lives. So no roots, no life. Or some would say a human has life when he or she breathes in needed oxygen from the environment in order to live. So bottom line, no oxygen, no life. And Paul is saying this that a Christian has life when he or she draws resurrection power from the one who died and rose again so that we could have eternal life. So bottom line, no Jesus, no life. But no Jesus, no life. And how does he offer this life to us? Well, again, due to Christ's work on the cross and our response to our repentance, he forgave us all our sins. And there's that four-letter word that many people don't want to use in our culture anymore. It's a very unpopular word, the word sins. I mean, it falls into the do not use category, even though people are often comfortable using all the other four-letter words imaginable. And then for many Christians, if we're going to be honest, we don't use that word either. When we do something wrong, we don't say, oh, I sinned. We say, I messed up. My bad, right, right? I was off my game. I made a mistake. I misspoke. You don't have to be a politician to use that one. Or how about this one that goes all the way back to the garden? It's their fault I did that. And the Bible says, no, that mistake, 
that my bad, that my sin is very serious. In fact, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. And even if we know this at some level, the truth is many times we respond like what we've done is really not that big of a deal. And in the process, we, we often miss the mark, which by the way is what sin means in the Greek, missing the mark. So how are you responding to sin, truly? I think there's four ways that people respond. First, we can deny sin and live a lie. We can deny it and just live a lie. It's kind of like you know going to the restaurant and eating way too much chips and cheese. In fact, ordering extra cheese on your chips, right? And ordering extra large and just consuming it all the while really knowing like, this is really bad for me. I'm speaking about myself right now. But you know what? It's not that big of a deal. So we deny sin and live a lie. Or we embrace sin and we run wild with it. In that way, sin is kind of like your nose. You know, everybody has one. And since it's a reality for all of us, we might as well use it as often as we can. It's kind of the culture of our day. Or third, we can bear sin and live in guilt. And this is where some people find themselves because they know that a certain sin has a hold on them in their life and they bear the weight of it. Even though it robs them of joy, robs them of life, robs them of relational health. Friends, sin is deceptive. One person spoke these words long before he realized the reality of these words in his own life. Sin will always take you farther than you want it to go keep you longer than you wanted to stay and cost you far more than you ever wanted to pay. Take that in. Can you relate to it? Because if you can, it can lead to the fourth response that we can confess sin and live in freedom. And by confess, I'm not just saying admit. You know, it's like saying, oh yeah, I did that. You know, it's hard to admit things sometimes, but I did that. No, confession includes this idea of repentance. It says, I did that, but Lord, forgive me, and now I'm gonna walk in the opposite direction with you, leaving that behind. That's confession. And then we live in freedom. So which response have you chosen? Which response did you choose yesterday or the day before that? What are you choosing now? You see, as I said when I began, we'll only live in freedom if we embrace bravery. The bravery needed to actually face that sin within us and confess it. Because only then we're gonna know freedom. And Paul says freedom not just from some of our sins or most of our sins or the worst of our sins, but from all of our sins. Paul says, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And here again, Paul reminds us of how Christ's story impacts our story. That just like his hands and feet were nailed to that cross, our sin was nailed to that cross. And then Paul talks about three powerful results for our sin being nailed there. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he's using terminology and references that were known to the culture. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So let's talk about three key words here. The word disarm. It means to remove or neutralize another's weapons. 
So Paul is basically saying that when our sins were nailed to the cross with Christ, God removed the weapons the enemy has ever used or can ever use to defeat you. As a follower of Christ, the enemy's weapons will impact you no longer. But that's not all. He says that since our sins were nailed to the cross with Christ, God has made the enemy a public spectacle. It means to expose the true colors of the enemy. The true colors. Because as you may know, the enemy comes like a friend. Like he did in the garden. No, let me help you. Let me show you some things that you haven't seen before. I'm your friend. And in the process, he shows us things that are alluring and appealing and tantalizing. In the middle of all that stands the cross. And it shines a spotlight on the enemy's true colors, his true intent, which is to bring death to every single one of us. But that kind of victory for him will never be possible when our sins have truly been nailed to the cross with Christ. Because in doing so, Paul says, we experience triumph. It means a public mockery of the losers. And here's what he's talking about. Back in the day, back in those times when one army defeated another, a triumphal procession would be formed. And that meant that the losers, the losing army, they would be forced to march to the center of the city with people on both sides watching them and really mocking them for their weakness because they lost. And as they mocked them for their weakness, what they were also doing was really enjoying the freedom that the victor had gained for them. And Paul is saying the same holds true for us. He's saying, you know, you, you can never live a better story than the one you're already joined in with Jesus because he is the victor. And even so, if we're honest, sometimes we try to embrace an alternative story because we like stories. After all, we live in a culture filled with all different kinds of stories, all different options. And many times we think, you know, if we'll buy that story or kind of enter into that story, we're going to experience freedom that's even greater than what God has offered us. And in response to this, Paul responds now and he speaks of some historical and theological things, which again made sense in that culture, which were impeding their freedom. He says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or the Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. He's saying the true reality is Jesus, and every other option is a poser, is a pretender, a high-priced piece of swampland in Florida. So don't buy it, because more of anything else will only give you more of what you don't need and what you don't want, and it's called enslavement. Friends, the time has come for us to get our spiritual arithmetic correct because many Christians live in this way still, that Jesus plus something equals freedom, not. No. That's why he mentions things like a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or even the Sabbath day. Because these were things that the Jewish people would, would you know, enter into as a way of, of kind of foreshadowing this one that would come one day. And Paul is saying, you don't need to do this any longer. Jesus has already come. Jesus has already arrived. He's the real deal. Focus your life on him. But they weren't. And in so doing, they're a lot like us here today. I mean, we know that Jesus has already come. He already died on the cross. He already rose again. And even so, some Christians today, and these are growing trends in our society, they live a Jesus plus lifestyle. 
You know, Jesus plus their new age meditation. You know, even going to classes where they'll enter into this and it's called new age meditation. Or, you know, Jesus plus their good works or Jesus plus their social gospel or Jesus plus their social media presence because people have to see me. And if they see me and more people see me, I'm gonna experience more of that freedom. Or Jesus plus prosperity gospel or Jesus plus Christian nationalism that if we place Jesus kind of alongside our country or below our country, somehow it's gonna make Jesus more prevalent? Or Jesus plus our materialistic accumulation? And friends, it's gonna bring about a whole lot less freedom. It's a belief that says Jesus is good. He is, he's just, he's just not good enough. It's a belief that says Jesus is good, but something more is needed to get God on my side. Newsflash, God is already on your side. That's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you to take you know, your sins upon his shoulders. He's already on your side. And that's why Jesus plus nothing equals freedom. You see, the reality is found in Christ. He's all that you need. And yet we are still prone to wonder. Like sheep, as Isaiah writes about, kind of want to go their own direction and, and we want to go our own direction so we pursue posers and pretenders and, and Paul warns, he says, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. You see, even in our culture, people seem enamored with false humility. They buy what someone is selling even though pride lurks behind their offer. If we're honest, we've even seen this in the Big C Church across America. There have been pastors who have used the name of Jesus as a means merely for marketing themselves, for giving themselves a bigger and better platform. And they've done so quite convincingly, at least for a while, due to their false humility. And then angels, that was popular 2,000 years ago, but we're still enamored with angels 2,000 years later. As I mentioned before, it seems like, you know, I go on Facebook every so often, and it seems like every week, Somebody dies, and somebody posts, well, another angel in heaven. Friends, when we die as Christians, we don't become angels. The Bible makes that clear. Either we experience eternity with God as his son or his daughter, or we, we're separated from God due to our own choice to, to live our own sinful life and say no to him. And while there are angels in heaven, we are not them. And then Paul writes, since you die with Christ, oh, here it is, friends. Look at these words. Since you die with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. You see, to handle something is to spend a good deal of time with it. Oh, isn't that interesting? And kind of explore that. To taste something is to ingest it in order to see how it might impact you know, my other senses. And then to touch something is often the first step that leads to the other two. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And we live in a culture that says, oh, you gotta handle, you gotta taste, you gotta touch. Oh, you gotta do it. In fact, we live in a culture that wants us to submit to all kinds of things, which sadly, some Christians already have submitted to. There are so many different examples, I'll just list some. 
For example, our culture wants us to believe that while there is such thing as a man and a woman, there's no way to define what a man or woman is. That, that you know, what gender is fluid. So therefore, when someone asks the question, what is a woman, how in the world could we even answer anymore? We live in a culture that says there's many different genders which exist, not just male and female. We live in a culture that says their schools, the public schools are there to teach your children values so parents kind of get out of the way. We live in a culture that says there's many roads to being politically correct, so forget about being biblically correct. We live in a culture that says there's so many ways to keep yourself busy focusing on yourself, so forget about loving God, forget about loving others. It's all about you. And we live in a culture that says there's so many different roads that lead to God. Jesus is just one of them, so take your pick. And Paul says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Because if you do, you'll experience something. It's not called freedom. It's called enslavement. In fact, in just the past like month or so, different studies are coming out and revealing that how our teens today, especially girls in particular, are struggling with such high rates of depression and suicidal tendencies that are directly linked, really, with the very things this culture esteems. I think of one young man in his mid-20s, strong Christian guy. And uh, you know what? He was one of those who loved to witness to others and share God with others. And then he told me one day, you know, he's listening to a progressive Christian podcast. He says, but don't worry about it. You know, I know where I stand, it's not gonna impact me. Fast forward a year, year and a half, now he's completely abandoned God, but he's completely embraced other things called drugs, one after another. And without question, he's on the road to self-destruction. His life is a mess. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Or I think about another young man, just a couple years ago, he met me in the lobby right after I had given the message. And he said, you know what? I live, he was at the University of Cincinnati. I, I live in a culture where my friends, they expect me to explore my sexuality. If I don't, I will not fit in. He said, at the very least, you know, I'm to be bisexual, if not something even more than that. And so I've tried that. And he said, never again. Never again. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Friends, Jesus plus nothing equals freedom. So yeah, it takes bravery to love only Jesus. It takes bravery to follow only Jesus. It takes bravery to love Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But friend, it's the bravery needed to experience true freedom. Jesus is the only more that you need. He's the only more that you need. So what about you? What about you? Have you been adding something onto Jesus? Have you? Have you handled? Have you tasted? Have you touched things like an affair that only you and that other person knows about, at least for now? Have you handled, tasted, and touched things like drugs that are really popular today? Are you drinking more alcohol than you should? Have you even touched pornography and now it's led to handling it. It's kind of consuming your life. How about mysticism 
Oh, it's so popular today that we're all God. We all, we all just certain aspects of God. We're all part of the universe. How about mysticism or new age meditation? How about this? I mean, many people are unaware, but it's growing trend. I mean, Christianity Today is talking about it recently. Psychedelic mushrooms, really popular in the college crowd. Because if you do that, you're gonna see God and everything in a whole new way. How about experimental sex? Our culture says, I'll try anything, just go for it. And how about image management? Working so hard to to make sure that you look good online. You can have more people follow you, more people esteem you, and that's why you keep checking how many people like you. How about lying? How about gossip? Oh, we give our excuses for gossiping and bringing other people down. It makes us feel more alive. Oh, it enslaves us. Then I have to ask, where are your eyes mostly focused? What are you looking at? I mean, are they more focused on Facebook than on God's word? Are they more focused on Instagram when compared to God's word? Are they more focused on Twitter when compared to your focus on God's word? And how about this one? It's gonna hurt some. It's gonna hurt some. Are they focused more on your favorite cable news channel than they are on God's word? You consume it and consume it and consume it. What you focus on, friends, you become. So do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Here's what I want you to think about. Since we sometimes want to regrow the sin areas of our heart that God in his goodness and his grace has already cut away, I want to encourage you to be brave enough right now to admit that to yourself. Be brave enough. And I want to encourage you to be brave enough and humble enough to confess it and repent from it and walk in the freedom that God has for you. So as we close out this service in just a few moments or so, I'm gonna ask you to embrace the braveness needed to kind of say, you know what? Maybe, you know, you've heard my message like Phil, that's like a great message for other people. In fact, I can think about five people who should hear this. But boy, I, I, you know, it's not really pertinent to me, but maybe you'd be brave enough to join me here at the altar in just a moment bow your knees in prayer and say, God, if there's anything that I can't see, anything I'm diving into that's gonna destroy me, show it to me now. Reveal it to me now. Be brave enough to join me up front. Or be brave enough to say, you know what? I've handled. I've tasted. I've more than touched. And it's killing me. Be brave enough in just a few moments to walk up front and just up front with me. Will you all stand right now? We all stand. We're going to close with this song. But I'm going to kneel up front. And I'm guessing that there are others here who could join me as well. I'm going to invite you to come. And let's come humbly. Wherever you are, standing where you are and kneeling up front, let's come before God and say, Jesus, you're all I need. I don't need anything more. So forgive me.
Thanks for listening. You can stay connected throughout the week by following Montgomery Community Church on Facebook and Instagram. For more information about MCC, visit our website at mcc.church.